This is the Elevate Student Ministry Podcast. Hi, I'm Pastor Dominic. Welcome to Elevate, the student ministry of Living Word Church, where we exist to exalt Christ, make disciples, and equip the saints. Thank you for sharing some of your time with us today. May it elevate Jesus and encourage you. Let's get started. We're in a summer series of tough questions that we're going to answer with biblical answers. As Christians, Scripture is our first authority and our final authority. It builds our worldview. It teaches us truth. It's what we go back to again and again. And so whenever we have difficult questions, it's where we need to begin and where we need to end. Um, So our question tonight is, why does an all-good, all-powerful God allow evil and suffering. So first, I'd like to lay out that there's two different kinds of evil. There's moral evil and there's natural evil. Natural evil would be like hurricanes, diseases, that kind of stuff. And then there's moral evil. This is when people hurt each other for the sake of their own selfishness. It's what comes from a sinful, corrupt human heart. A lot of, a lot of religious people have become atheists over this problem of suffering, the problem of pain. I've heard one very popular atheist say that that if he dies and there happens to actually be a God, when he meets him, he's going to shake his fist at him and remind him of, of children with bone cancer and the diseases and wars that he just allowed to happen. What a terrifying perspective. So the argument would go something like this. If God is all powerful, then he has the ability to stop evil evil and suffering. If he is all good, he would want to stop it and do it. And since evil hasn't stopped, he is either not good or he is too weak to stop it. So the problem of this argument right there at the surface is that it pictures a, a God who's too small. This either or equation is limited to only two possible conclusions. Either God is all good, but not powerful, or he is all powerful, but not good. But these two possible conclusions are coming from a limited human mind. God is good. God is all powerful. And it's true that God hasn't stopped evil yet. It doesn't account, this this view of God doesn't account for his sovereignty It doesn't account for his justice. It doesn't account for his patience. It doesn't account for his love. This God is too small. We have to be able to zoom out and say that God might be big enough that he is all good and all powerful and out of his justice and wisdom and patience and love and his other attributes, he has chosen out of his will to allow evil for a period of time. So how did we get here? And this takes us right to the very beginning of the Bible. We won't spend long here because none of this is going to be new information to you guys, but it's Genesis 1, verse 26. This is God creating day after day. And on this particular day, the sixth day, God is creating man. And right here in verse 26, 
right after God makes all the animals and creeping things, he says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And, and here's our key, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. So God appoints man dominion over his creation. He gives man authority. So whatever affects man is going to affect the dominion that God has placed him over. And it doesn't take but turning one chapter, chapter 2, verse 9, we see God has created man from the dust of the ground, and God gives him a job. And in 2.9, it says that, or 2.8, it says the Lord planted a garden in Eden. And then in 2.9, it says, out of the ground, the Lord made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life is in the midst of the garden and the tree and the knowledge of good and evil. And then we jump to verse 15. God takes the man, puts him in the garden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord commanded the man saying, you shall surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So man has a responsibility. And if man ever at some point had free will, it would be here because he has no pressures apart from his responsibility to God. And how does he handle his responsibility is that he rebels against God and disobeys. And his free will is now corrupted by sin so that his will is no longer free. Romans makes it very plain that man is a, sin, a slave to sin. And this will be the course of human history. Then, oh, and then in Romans 5, you guys can look it up later, it talks about through Adam, sin came into the world and affected all of us. Then something interesting happens. So that's moral evil. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 17, this is God's curse to Adam. And listen to something that interesting that happens here. And to Adam, God says, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Curses the earth, what you're on, what you're walking on. Curses the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you. You shall, um, you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it, you were taken for your dust and to dust you shall return. So, Earth itself, creation itself is cursed. Man's going to eat of corrupted, cursed ground, and man's going to return to dust back to the cursed ground. And so if we were to look at Romans 8, I'll flip there for you real quick. You can look if you want. It's Romans 8, chapter 20. It says this, For the creation was subjected to futility. This is talking about the curse. Not willingly, but because of him, Adam, who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And so we have moral evil right there at the beginning, and we also see natural evil at the beginning. Disease and hurricanes and tornadoes and earthquakes all come back to the pressure and weight of man's sin on creation itself. So mankind and creation are out of alignment with the creator. 
So what if God just annihilated every source of evil? If he did, we wouldn't be able to enjoy it because we wouldn't be around to have an opinion about it. We ourselves are part of the problem, apart from Christ. So what does scripture have to say? Why is evil in the world? And I considered following the trends of a lot of the sources that I looked at where it just sort of like shotgun blasts a whole bunch of verses about suffering. But I think what might be a little bit more comforting and pastoral is if we look at people in scripture that experience suffering and why scripture assigns that they were suffering. So we're gonna move around pretty fast. Let's see if you can stick with me. If you have your Bibles, Open first to Mark chapter 5. If you're looking for Mark, cut your Bible in half, then go to the half in your right hand, cut that in half, and you should be close to Matthew. Mark is right after that. Matthew chapter 5. Yeah, sorry, Mark chapter 5. So Jesus shows up. So the first reason that we have suffering in the world, and I'm not saying that this is the biggest reason, these aren't in a particular order, but the first that we'll talk about tonight is that we have a spiritual enemy. There are, there are forces of evil. Ephesians chapter six describes them in more detail as this principalities, these invisible evil forces that are against us. This is Satan and his demons. And right here we have a very clear picture of Satan and his demons at work. And this is Jesus arriving on a ship and he encounters a demon-possessed man. And so let's pick up chapter 5, verse 2. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Wow, consider this guy. Consider the lifestyle he's had. The only verses this poor guy hears, the only voices he hears are the tormenting voices of demons and the voices of the people that hate him and are terrified of him. He lives alone among a graveyard because he's ostracized from society. He has nothing. He has no one. All he has is his torment. And he meets Jesus. Verse six, and when Jesus saw him from afar, he ran and he fell down before him and crying out with a loud voice, he said, what do you have to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Verse eight, for he was saying to him, Jesus is speaking to him saying, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. These are the demons speaking out of this guy. And he begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside and they begged him saying, send us into the pigs, let us enter them. So Jesus gave them permission and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs and the herd numbering about 2,000 rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned. Now you have to understand that the demons would prefer some sort of weird death escape through the pigs than to encounter Jesus. That's kind of cool. They are terrified of the son of God. 
Verse 14, the herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And the people came to see what it was that happened. They came to see Jesus and they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. For those who had seen it described it to them, what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs? And they began to beg Jesus, depart from their, religion, depart from their region. And as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And, he, and Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends, tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And this demon-possessed man went away and began to proclaim a Decapolis about how, Je- how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. So we have, we have like a, a bright sighting of demon possession there's also demon oppression. There's, there's spiritual forces at work all around that are influencing towards evil. Second, and this may be a bit challenging, I'm gonna call you to a greater spiritual maturity and love for the Lord of seeing him as your father. Turn your Bibles to Psalm 39. The second reason that we might see suffering and pain is God's discipline. This is a Psalm of David. And it's hard to peg exactly what part of his life this Psalm comes from, but it's pretty self-explanatory. Psalm 39, starting in verse one, listen to what David says. He says, I will, I said, I will guard my ways. So David's talking to himself. I'm telling myself, I'm going to guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. This is what David's trying not to do. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. When I'm around sinners, I'm going to watch what I have, what I have to say. Verse two, I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail. And my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me as I mused the fire burn. Then I spoke with my tongue. I failed. I was trying to withhold. So David's trying to hold back something that he knows he shouldn't say when he's around these sinners. And he fails. It was to no avail. He opens his mouth and his mouth gets him into trouble. Anyone experience that? You get open your mouth and your mouth gets you into trouble? Look at... Look what David says. Jump to verse four. This is him in a state of repentance. Oh Lord, make me know my end. And what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. He's saying like, show me how small my life is so that I'll embrace every day of it. Let's jump to verse seven. And now, oh Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions, all my sins. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Do you hear this? He is feeling God's rebuke in his life. God's discipline is against him. It's like, he says it's like a stroke. It's like a strike against him. This hostility is coming from God's hand. God is disciplining him with rebukes for his sin. Verse 12, hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears. 
for I am a sojourner with you. I'm a guest like all my fathers. He's saying, I feel like I'm a foreigner from you. I feel like I'm, I'm far away from you. Look away from me that I may smile again. What is he saying? He's saying, he's saying you're, you're, you're anger, you're displeased with me. Turn that away from me. Be pleased with me so that I can smile again before I depart and I'm no more. He's feeling the weight of his sin that God has brought discipline against him. In Hebrews chapter 12, it speaks plainly of this. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse six, it says, for the Lord, listen, disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. For it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons and daughters. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness." So if God isn't disciplining you, it means that he doesn't count you as his son or daughter. He's going to discipline the people he cares about because he's bringing them what for our good and our holiness. So sometimes we experience pain and suffering because God is disciplining us. It's worth regularly repenting. But let's not take it so far that we attribute all suffering and pain to God being angry or something. This isn't God being angry. This is God calling us back to himself, back to holiness, back so that he can sharpen us and make us righteous again. But there's more reasons that we see suffering and pain. You can spend time reading the incredible story of Joseph. You probably know it. Joseph is betrayed by his brothers while they're landing and living in Canaan. He's sold as a slave. He's drugged to Egypt. He's a slave in the house of a man named Potiphar. Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him. When he rejects her, she has him thrown into prison, accusing him of rape. It's like his life just goes from low to lower to lower again. And then God snatches him out of the prison through an incredible miracle and places him in charge of the entire nation of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh himself. It's this incredible butterfly effect, that a domino tips of Joseph being a little bit arrogant <laughs> gets himself in trouble with his brothers. And then from bad to worse to worse, he experiences suffering for years with no hope. And then he experiences suffering again for years with no hope until it comes full circle to show God's plan that he was at work the entire time. We have no idea the domino effects of what are going on in our lives from pain and suffering. Isaiah chapter 55. If you want to find it quickly, just cut your Bible in half and go right a little bit. Isaiah 55 says something that's really flinchy. And it lines up with exactly what David said. Isaiah 55 verse 8 through 9. It puts in perspective how big God is and how small we are. For my thoughts, God is speaking right here. My thoughts are not your thoughts, 
Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. So what's he saying? You understand what's going on about an ant's level on earth compared to my view from the stars. As high as the heavens are from the earth, that's how different our thinking is and how different our ways of doing things are. So we have, there's spiritual warfare going on, God's discipline, and then this beautiful butterfly effect of we don't know how our pain and suffering will play out in God's bigger plan. Second Corinthians if you know where the Gospels are, just go right a little bit, and you'll hit 2 Corinthians pretty fast. Acts, Romans, First and Second Corinthians. This is an interesting story to jump into the middle of. The fourth reason that we'll see spiritual, or we'll see suffering and pain and evil is because God intends spiritual growth. Paul has been talking in third person, describing visions that God has given him, incredible visions. And these visions are bragging rights to say, I am like, I, like God has taken me to, to, to spiritual levels that most people will never understand. And so to kind of disconnect himself from sounding arrogant, he talks in third person. And then he says this, this is 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh. We have no idea what Paul means by that. A thorn in the flesh, that might mean that he has a physical ailment. Maybe he's got bad eyesight or, or maybe having been stoned so many times, he is, he's crippled in some way. Maybe thorn in the flesh is some sort of metaphor for a difficulty, people that are following him around trying to tear down his ministry. We don't know what it is, but there's a thorn that's given to him in the flesh. Something is hindering him. And he calls it a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. So God is using suffering in his life to keep him humble. Verse eight, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. God uses pain and suffering like a sharpening stone on the edge of a knife. And he's sharpening his people. And it comes with sparks and it comes with heat and it comes with grinding and it's uncomfortable. But with every pass, in every season of suffering, God is preparing his people as sharper instruments for his kingdom. He's preparing his people to be more like himself, people that are more compassionate, more humble, more holy through pain and suffering. In Romans 5, 3 through 5, it talks about pain and suffering creating endurance and character and hope. In James chapter 1, Verses two through four and verse 12, it says that suffering creates steadfastness, wholeness, and a heavenly reward. In Romans 8, verse 16, it says that suffering unites us with Christ and glorifies us with him. Suffering leads us to grow. 
We can learn a lot more from pain than we can from blessing. It leads us back to Jesus again. If we only walked in ease and we only walked in blessing, our faith would become shallow. It would become hollow. We would become conceited and immature and self-sufficient and prideful and selfish. But our frailty humbles us and it drives us back to the Lord again and again and again. Pain is temporary, but spiritual growth is permanent. The next time you have the thought, I feel afflicted, I feel suffering and pain, let your very next thought be this, God wants me to draw closer to him again. God wants to be faithful so that I can see his faithfulness. This is what God is doing. So we deal with spiritual warfare, God's discipline, God's intricate butterfly effect, God's spiritual growth. And the last one where I call you to spiritual maturity again, number five, why do we deal with pain and suffering in our world? Is sometimes we will never know. Turn your Bibles to the book of Job. Cut your Bibles down the middle. If you hit Psalms or Isaiah, go left. Job is a key example in scripture of a man who encountered some of the worst of suffering. And in chapters one and two, Job loses his wealth. He loses his sons and his daughters. Everything that he owns is stripped away. And finally, his own health is taken from him, where he has boils oozing on his body. And he's miserable all day, every day in suffering. And for some reason, God saw that leaving Job, his wife, was greater suffering than taking her. And so he has a wife that's telling Job to curse God and die. And so Job chooses to not curse God, and he chooses to not turn it around and blame God. And at the same time, Job wants to challenge God because Job sees himself as righteous and he knows that he didn't do anything wrong. So he, he comes with this. Turn your Bibles to Job chapter 13 and prepare yourself to flinch a little. Job has had a friend challenge him that he is in sin, and Job is saying, no, I'm not in sin. You need to know God's character better. But he says, but I do want to talk to God. I do want to have it out with him. I'd like to have a hearing, a court case, where I get to kind of challenge God here a little bit. I, I would like to bring my case to him. That things, like what's going on in my life, I don't deserve this. So let's look at Job chapter 13, verse three. Job says this to his friend, but... I would speak to the Almighty, and I desire to argue my case with God. Jump down to verse 15. Though he slays me, I will hope in him, yet... So he's saying, I want to hope in him. I, I, I lean into him. He's got this. But at the same time, yet I will argue my ways to his face. <laughs> verse 18. Behold, I have prepared my case. I know that I shall be in the right. So painful. Verse 20, only grant me two things. So this is what he says. He's like, I want God to grant me these two things. Then I will not hide myself from your face. Withdraw your hand far from me and let not dread of you terrify me. 
then I will call and I will answer. Or let me speak and you will reply to me. So he's saying two things. First of all, Lord, let me talk to you face to face. And two, don't let me be so scared of you that I can't speak. Because if I can speak, I want to argue my case. So this is what he has to say. Verse 22, then call and I will answer. Or let me speak and you reply to me. So he's saying, God, I want to talk and I want you to reply. How many are my iniquities and my sins? Make me know my transgression and my sin. Why do you hide your face from me and count me as your enemy? Will you frighten a driven leaf and pursue dry chaff? Job's saying, I'm innocent. I'm weak. I've got nothing. And God, you're coming after me for no reason. Verse 26, for you write bitter things against me and make me inherit the iniquities, the sin of my youth. You put my feet in the stocks and watch all my paths. You set a limit for the soles of my feet. Man wastes away like a rotting thing, like a garment that is moth-eaten. So he's saying, God, I challenge you. What sin have I done? I'm in the right here. Sometimes we're never going to know why God chooses pain and suffering in our life. And don't worry, we're going to come back around to Job again. Psalm 119.75, David says something else that's uncomfortable. A lot of people believe that David wrote Psalm 119. He says this, in faithfulness, you have afflicted me. He's talking to God in faithfulness. So God, because you are faithful to me, you brought hardship. Like that is so uncomfortable. That grinds against everything in our nature. And yet it is a view of God being faithful. We are so limited to thoughts like this. How I feel about what I think is going on in my situation. Isn't that it? We, we feel like we think we know what God is doing. We feel like we think we know what is going on in society. Our emotions are creating our opinions about what is happening. But God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His ways are higher than our ways. Only an infinite mind could understand all that an infinite God does. 1 Peter 1 12 says that angels look in curiosity into the things that God is doing. Angels, they don't have sin clouding their view. Angels in heaven watching what God is doing with a better perspective than we have are going, I have no idea what's going on. Let's watch and find out. Pass the popcorn. Sometimes we don't know what God is doing. If I can admit that I don't know what God is doing, it's kind of arrogant for me to believe that God isn't doing anything. So many times crushing pain comes and we just go, nothing good can come out of this. God is not at work. I don't feel him. I don't feel his presence. I don't know where things are going from here. Obviously, he's either failed or he doesn't exist. But if our view is so small and his view is so big, boy, would we challenge God to say, I am in the right. If only I could see him face to face, I would correct the way God thinks. Just because we can't imagine how God will use this for good doesn't mean his omnipotent hands are tied from bringing about his good purposes. Now, if you were to look at these five things, spiritual warfare, discipline, a butterfly effect, spiritual growth, and we just don't know. There's a common denominator through all of them. And it's beautiful. 
And the common denominator in every one of these five things, please don't miss this. Now is your chance to pay attention and get something great. Is that in every one of these five things, we see the number one reason for pain and suffering and evil in this world is that God is at work for his glory. The demon possession man, the last couple of verses says, he went away and began to proclaim into capitalists how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. Spiritual warfare turned around for God's glory and his good. With David, in looking at Hebrews 12, it says he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. It yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. In God's discipline, our good, his glory. For Joseph, whenever Joseph finally confronted his brothers again in this huge cinematic moment, what does Joseph say to him? In Genesis 45, verse seven, Joseph says this, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. Verse eight, so it was not you who sent me here, but God. In, the, in this crazy butterfly effect, in this domino falls, God takes it and turns it for his people's good and for his glory. Paul was 2 Corinthians, this thorn in the flesh that's supposed to, to shape him and sharpen him. 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 10, it says this, for we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. So Paul's saying we were afflicted when we were in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. This is, that is hard times that Paul is talking about. Verse nine, indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Verse 10 in 2 Corinthians 1, he delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. When we are being sharpened by the Lord, it is for his glory and for our good. How? Would we know his faithfulness if we were never in situations that we needed him to be faithful or else everything would fall apart? I'll say that again. How could we know God's faithfulness unless we are in situations when we need him to be faithful or everything will fall apart? And finally, when we just don't know, Job Chapter 38, Job has the honor and the terror of having his request met. Job chapter 38, God speaks to him. And by the way, God is a little sarcastic. God digs deep. Job chapter 38, verse one, then... Yahweh answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Let me translate for you. Counsel means you have your intelligence. Darkens it means that you make it dumber. So he's saying, who is this that is making their own intelligence stupider 
with, by words without knowledge. You're making yourself sound foolish, Job, because you're using words you don't even understand. Are you following me? Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you. Job, you want to question me? Let's turn the tables. I'm asking the questions now. I will question you. And Job, you make it known to me. Let's see if you have some answers for me, Job. Verse four, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Job, did I consult you when I decided how the world works? Were you floating around? Did you have any power over what? Did I ask for your wisdom when I created the very ground that you walk on, when I made the air that you breathe, when I surrounded you with the nature that you live from? Did I need your wisdom pulling this off, big buddy? Who determined its measurements? Surely, Job, you know. You've got this all figured out. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. And you can just read as Job gets roasted by God. God's saying, why don't you teach me how to run my universe? Who do you think you are? And God, God just roasts him for like three, four chapters. Man, it is so painful. Turn to, in your Bibles to Job chapter 42. Job responds to God. And he doesn't have quite the same chip on his shoulder. He doesn't have the arrogant tone. He doesn't think he's very self-righteous anymore. <laughs> Job chapter 42, verse 1. And you'll notice that Job is quoting back God's own lines to him. Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And he talks about himself. He's repeating God's words about him. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Right here, me. Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Here, Hear, and I will speak. I will question you. So Job is repeating God's words. Hear, and I will speak, and I will question you and make it known to me. <laughs> in, that, in that, God, I, this is how I respond. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. When Job gets a glimpse of who God is, he realizes that he's making him sound stupider by the words that he uses to challenge God. He realizes that whenever he listens to God and tries to question it, that he is lost. And when he sees himself, when he thought of himself so self-righteous, he said, God, tell me what my iniquities are. Tell me what my transgressions were. He says, therefore, I despise myself. I repent in dust and ashes. We may not ever know why. We have pain and suffering. But we can know God and his character. And he is good. And he is loving. And he is merciful. And he's all-powerful. And he's wise. And he's just. And he's patient. Thank God he's patient. 
Because had he stopped being patient the day before you gave yourself your life to Jesus and were saved, you would have gone to hell. Thank God for his patience. That he abides with evil just a little bit longer so people can know him. There was a man in John chapter 9 who was born blind, and his disciples asked Jesus, Jesus, why? Why is he born blind? Is it because he sinned or because his parents sinned? Again, they only had two options, either or. Their view of God was too small. Jesus heals him. And in verse three, Jesus says that he does it for God's glory. And this blind man, now healed with sight, turns around and preaches a sermon to the religious leaders, giving God all the praise and becomes a follower of Christ. Jesus receives the due recognition and the praise in every one of these situations. In every one of these reasons for evil and suffering, in darkness, light. The darker the darkness, the clearer the light. And the greatest darkness of human history came at the cross. It was when man in all of his hatred took out his greatest hatred on God himself. The greatest evil, the greatest suffering on a man. And Hebrews 2.9 says this about it. But we see him, Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So Jesus, the greatest pain and suffering and agony and evil in human history did two things. It glorified God and it made a way for our salvation. God sees pain and suffering and evil differently than you and I do. And even though we may never be able to see it that way, he has made it possible for us to see him through his word, through the life of Jesus, and through the work of Jesus. God gets the glory. God is at work in every evil and in every pain. I know I'm going long, but I want to offer you a little perspective and four things to walk out of here with. We're going to all experience pain and suffering and evil. It's coming for all of us. If you're not in it now, it's in your future. Like we live in a real fallen world. And for all those reasons, we're going to encounter pain and suffering. We can either respond with wise. We can shake our fists and say, why God? Why, 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 why? And with every why, we get more angry. And with every why, we challenge him more. And with every why, we push ourselves further away from trusting him. And we ask ourselves why, because we think that if we had an answer that we'd feel better. But I can tell you that if you knew the answer, you still aren't going to feel better about suffering and pain and loss. But there's a different perspective. The different perspective could be, I've been hurt and I'm hurting. I'm just hurting. But I know despite my feelings that God is smarter than me, that he loves me, and I choose to trust him. I choose to rest in him. I can heal through him. I can become more like him. I can be used by him because of it. 
This impossible day, this impossible season isn't the rest of my life, and it's surely not the rest of my eternity. My strength is not limited to my ability, nor is this situation the limits of what God has for me. And I'll tell you that no matter which you choose, to choose the why, the anger, and the hatred, or to choose the hope and the trust, you will still feel the pain and you'll still not understand, but you will have hope and there will be room for peace and they'll know deep inside that there is purpose. I can't tell you why your suffering is happening, but I know that we have a God who is bigger than, yes, even that pain. So here's three things I'd like to offer you, four things I'd like to offer you. One, remember God's promises. Even when you have your feelings are dragging you over the coals, even when you're in the darkest pit and there's no way out, remember God's promises. There's something to hold on to, even if you don't feel them. His promises are found in Romans 8, 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Have you committed your life to Christ? Then you know that you're called and God's gonna work them out. Romans 8, 18. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Whatever your suffering is, whatever, let's say your suffering's on a scale of one to 10, your suffering's a 10, For this period in your life, this year, this 20 years, this rest of your life, it doesn't even begin to compare for the glory of being in God's presence for eternity. Philippians 1.6, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. Revelation 21, evil will be dealt with. Pain and suffering will be over. Satan will find his place in hell finally and permanently. It says that that God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Why? God's not running around with like the Holy Spirit hanky. What it's saying is that you're going to remember the suffering, but you're not going to feel it anymore. Now that pain and suffering is through a new lens. It is through a lens of worship because you see the faithfulness of God on this side of eternity. Remember God's promises. Number two, lean into God's presence. These come from the Psalms, which is perfect. If you're ever in a place of depression, live in the Psalms. Psalm 34, 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. You may not feel it, but you know that it's real. Where can I go from your presence? The highest hill to the depths of Sheol or the dead, From the morning to the setting of the sun, where can I go from your presence? Nowhere. He's with us. Your feelings don't block God's omnipresence. Psalm 61, one through three. Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth, I called you and my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I, for you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. What is our author doing here? He's leaning in to the presence of God. Number three, remember patience. Isaiah 40, 28 through 31. Have you not known, have you not heard Yahweh, 
is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He doesn't fade or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They, those who are waiting in the Lord, will mount upon wings like eagles. Those who are waiting in the Lord will run and not grow weary. Those who are waiting in the Lord will walk and not faint. There's a difference between time heals, and there's a difference between the combination of the Holy Spirit using time to change your life into a testimony. And finally, remember praise. I offer you Psalm 42, and we're not going to read it right now. But you'll see, you'll see in Psalm 42, someone who is broken and crushed. Someone who is in the, the depths of despair and depression. And you'll see, you'll see them worship. You'll see hope through praise. Pain and suffering may say, you've got nothing to offer but I will tell you that the sweetest prayers and the sweetest praise to the throne of God is coming from someone that isn't getting anything from it. It's pure love and pure worship when you give it without feeling like you get a kickback. God has allowed sin and suffering to enter the world through man's sin. Sin and suffering are here because of spiritual warfare and God's discipline, the butterfly effect and our spiritual growth, and the reality that we just may never know. But all the reasons come down to a single reason, and that is that God is at work for his people's good and for his glory. A biblical perspective gives an eternal purpose for suffering and makes peace and hope possible. And while we wait, while we encounter and experience suffering, we can remember the four Ps, that we remember God's promises, that we press into God's presence, that we are patient, and that we praise. So I challenge you that the next time you're experiencing suffering, instead of trying to escape difficulty or struggling to understand with a hopeless question of why, to begin to look for what God is wanting to do in you during that season of suffering. Heavenly Father, I, I pray that despite the length of this study, that you have opened up hearts and attuned ears, that you've sharpened minds, that you've given tools to those who aren't in suffering yet, and that you've encouraged those who are. Lord, please use your word and your Holy Spirit to lift up the head of your people and use your word and your Holy Spirit to call those who don't know true peace yet because they haven't made you their Lord. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the hope that we have in you in this life and in eternity. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. And a special thanks to all of you who have subscribed, shared episodes, and left reviews. If you would like to learn more about Elevate, you can visit us at iloveelevate.com and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Thank you for everything you do that brings faith, hope, and love to the world around you. Now go, follow Jesus.